Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Ward Bell. Hello. John Papa. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's E.S. I don't even know if I want to try your last name. Sharai... Sharaiha. Yeah, you got it. I just had to sound it out about eight times. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I'm a software engineer. Um, I currently work at uh, Google um, in Google Maps. Yeah, I um, you know mostly end up working with uh, a lot of like uh, backend and infrastructure work, but it kind of gave me an interesting um, view in um, Angular, uh, just because it, you're often working on these teams where um, you know there's all these backend engineers that like um, you know want to write these like tiny front end front-ends or whatever, and, you know, often, like, want to spend as little time as possible on the front-ends. And so, you know, as far as whenever my work uh, requires me to work with the front-end, you often see a lot of, you know, it's, it's often a jungle out there. Um, and so uh, that, that was kind of an interesting way to get introduced to kind of Angular and what patterns work and what patterns really don't work when taken to an extreme. We invited you to talk about the article that you wrote uh, data and page content refresh patterns in Angular. And it looks like this ties into observables and, right. you know, th- these are things that we talk about fairly frequently. But what what I'm curious is, is that I, I love the idea of patterns, but I am not very good at implementing them. And so yeah. I'm sure people are screwing it up. John, before the show was saying, you're holding it wrong, RxJS, right. you're holding it wrong. So, oh, yeah. so yeah, so what, what kind of approaches are we talking about here and what kinds of mistakes are people making? Right. So often like the, the, the biggest thing that, I, that I've been harping on and, you know, I have this like series of three articles um, that are all very related. They're all talking about uh, different RxJS patterns, uh, specifically with like how people deal with observables. And they all kind of started from these notes that I keep writing over and over again and, you know, code review feedback that I eventually like turned into a document and eventually I, I, I put out on a blog. And so a lot of the things that, that you know, I'm talking about here have to do with um, people sometimes kind of either deal with uh, sub, uh, observables for a too short a time or too long time. Or I can say that a bit better which is that people either um, kind of uh, transform observables and then subscribe too early or subscribe too late or put certain kinds of data um, transformations um, in places where they end up making, um, you know, that ends up making the code a lot less clear. 
you know, there's a lot of these patterns that that you would see out there on the web where, um, you know, people kind of tell you like the right way to write some code. And the thing that I've tried to do instead in a lot of these articles is kind of talk about different ways you can write the code and, 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 and try to guide the reader to see, hey, this, this, this way to write the code is actually kind of nicer. So it's uh, more about walking uh, people through with this like um, trial and error until you get to like a nice, neat uh, pattern uh, rather than, you know, just like uh, laying down some sort of law. And so in particular, you know, like whenever your data is changing in Angular, you know, like we're dealing with um, something that's very reactive by its nature. And, you know, it's like uh, the whole idea of how you deal with uh, changes is, is um, you know, like one of the most discussed things in Angular, whether it's how to deal with changes in a performant way, or if it's, you know, how to like display uh, some data that, you know, updated in the backend and now, you know, some values are changed and stuff like that. So especially when it comes to like how you refresh from your content when it came from a backend, you end up seeing a lot of very different things uh, because Angular is flexible enough to support a bunch of different things. You know, you can um, subscribe to something in the background in your component and, uh, you know, make a request every 10 seconds and then like, you know, update a bunch of variables and have change detection take care of everything for you. You know, you can put a bunch of things in observables and, and just model this as, as an observable with retries. And those give you very different results that, you know, ultimately both work and, and, and you know, to an end user might look the same. So I kind of wanted to dive in, in you know, the things that I've been writing with kind of the advantages and limitations of, of, of either of these approaches. So tell me, when are people using it right? Let, let's start from there. Like, what's the foundational, if you could give like just a couple tips on, I'm an RxJS user, I come to you and I want to say, I have limited time and I want to know what are like the three best things I can do to make sure I practice using RxJS right? Where would you start? Right. Um, so the, the, the big thing for me is, to encourage someone to look at um, side effects as an idea. Um, and I touched upon this a bit with, with another article I wrote. But the basic idea is, you know, if you are, uh, that I would encourage someone in general to think about most of the coding they do as transforming data and piping data around from one format to another format. And insofar as what you're doing is, you know, you're getting data from somewhere, maybe it's from the server or a user, then you're transforming that and you're performing some operations on it. As long as all of these data transformations you're doing don't have side effects, uh, you're not asking for input from the user, you're not saving something to the database, you're not uh, setting timers or, or, or showing, you know, models or whatever it is you're doing, then thinking about RxJS in its purest form, you know, as an observable and a set of uh, pipeable operators is the best thing you can do. But as soon as you start, you know, actually doing something that has side effects, like show, you know, uh, input or output or, or, or um, you know, making network requests or, um, you know, uh, again, like showing a message to a user or saving something to a database, et cetera, then you want to start doing that, you know, as a callback to a subscription rather than, you know, like actually in, in what, you know, you might think of as like a representation of, of an observable. And I think, you know, some of the rule of thumbs here is kind of helped by the idea that an observable is this like inherently lazy construct where, you know, it just exists and, you know, people can choose to 
subscribe and unsubscribe to it at any given time. And so if the observable does anything other than the data it is emitting, then something is probably wrong, right? So if when you subscribe to an observable, it also is silently, um, you know, I don't know, like showing um, like messages to the user, then if two people subscribe to it and it's not, you know, shared observable, that, that might be a weird behavior. Or you might be, you know, subscribed to an observable expecting to get um, some data structure out. But in addition to the data structure, you know, someone's like, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background, right? So, so that's kind of the idea is if you're actually doing something, um, some sort of IO or some sort of like, you know, modifying global state um, or any kind of side effects, you probably want to keep that as, as, as far as close to the edge as possible. And that just makes it easier for, um, you know, the developer to understand the intent, you know? You know, I'm surprised that we haven't ended up at, at this, this place these days where you hear about RxJS observables all the time in Angular, right. and outside of Angular now too, where all communication isn't using them. For example, why don't we just, instead of using inputs, why don't we just use observables to pass properties from one component down to another? Right. Instead of routes, why don't we have observables that actually change the route for you? And I'm going a little overboard on purpose here, but I think what bothers me about this conversation sometimes is I'll open up these large applications that I see at uh, large companies, and suddenly it's like they've been introduced to the idea, and now they've got 500 subjects and observables all over the app. Right. And they're trying to figure out, how do we get to this point? Excuse me, how do we get to this point? And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't there, so I don't know how they got there. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but it's amazing if you think about it, how just a couple of years ago, we didn't even think about this. We solved these problems in different ways. And now we're at this point where we're using observables in all these different places with, at least with Angular apps, uh, to solve these problems. I, I wonder, when you see these apps that are using observables everywhere, what are the most common, I guess, code smells that you find there where you can correct people? Right. Um, I mean, definitely like the whole idea of, um, you know, having a code that is, you know, mutating this global state in general, you know, like any kinds of um, side effects, like is a very big thing that you can see. Uh, you know, like th th there's a few bending over backwards uh, just to use an observable, um, you know, so they're like, you know, so they get this data and they're like, you know, making it an observable, then, then, you know, that's, that's something. And often it's, you know, the little things like um, very often, like you see, you know, small patterns, like you got data through an observable and you unpack that and through a subscription and you save it somewhere and then you republish it in a subject. And like, that's, that's, you know, one kind of, you know, code smell that you see. Um, uh, you know, other kinds, I guess, um, I guess I can talk a little bit more about, uh, the whole idea of, um, unpacking an observable too early or too late. Can you define kind of what that means to you too? Like unpacking just so everybody understands. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you think of this observable as, as, you know, this, you know, especially in TypeScript, you know, it's an observable of type T. If we think of T as this inner data type that, that the observable is, 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 uh, you know, giving you events on, then, um, you know, as, as long as you're dealing with an observable and, and piping it, um, then that's, you know, one kind of operation. Uh, when I say unpacking, I usually mean, you know, that final step of subscribing to an observable, 
getting that value and saving it somewhere as a, as a, as a singular scalar value. And often like, the, the kinds of patterns that you end up seeing here are, you know, if, if I have this observable and I want to do something with it, um, if I'm getting this data as a bunch of observables, uh, but I really need to transfer it and join it with a bunch of other kinds of data, then, you know, if I, if I subscribe to a bunch of observables and um, kind of take their values and then, um, you know, save those to, to global variables or, or whatever you want to, uh, or, or pass it down to, to some user um, and then deal with that, you know, using um, just regular scalar code, then, then that would be un- un- unpacking the observable. Very often what I mean by unpacking an observable too soon is, um, you know, if you call a subscription, you know, like one, one very common example you might see is um, subscribing to a bunch of different observables when you can combine them into one and then, um, you know, using combined latest or something like that. That seemed to be the thing that you were going after in that first article about paging. For those who haven't had a chance to read it, may I summarize what you're you're doing there? Uh, uh, The the idea, it starts from something where you know you want to have a page of foos. You've got just lots of foos to show, but there's plenty of, you could just go get it imperatively because you wanted to. You could get it. Also say, hey, you know, I'm going to get it every hundred seconds. And you could say, whoops, uh, I'm a... I'm going to change what I get. I'm not going to get foos. I'm going to get bars because the the route changed and the parameter I'm looking for is bars, not foos. Right. So, uh, and you you say to yourself, well, those are three different ways to go to the server and get something. It seemed to me what you were showing there, you know, you were implying there was that somebody might try and do that as three separate um, way, you know, three separate calls to the server. And what you're saying is, no, I can I can look at the sources here. The sources are do it now, do it for this parameter, do it every 10 seconds. If I treat those as observables and combine them together, I can then channel all of those attempts to reach the server into one stream. And people aren't used to the idea that they can take sources of change, combine them to trigger a consolidated stream of data. And that's kind of what you were showing as a pattern there. But when they don't know about those combiners, when they don't know their operators can combine things, they only know how to go after things one way. So they have three right. separate things that go to the database, and then they try and figure out how to knit them together in a subscribe. And so if they learn about the combiners in, in RxJS, they'll find that this is more, this, it's easier to build these things up. And that's a pattern you have to learn. That seems right. to be what you were talking about. The bad thing was trying to go to the server three t- separate times. The good thing is learning the combiners and putting them together. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Um, and the other, the other important thing I think that a lot of people miss, just because it's so easy to display um, data in an Angular template, you know, for like a regular variable, um, is uh, really encouraging people to like look into and try out the ergonomics of async pipe. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, a, a lot of what I'm saying ultimately is that um, so many of us are used to this idea of programming as a very procedural thing, right? So, so you get a bunch of code, now you have data, you loop over it, you know, you do these operations, and then you, you put that data somewhere else. And, you know, when, when someone starts with observables or, or, or reactive extensions in general, you know, they're missing a few things that kind of make them 
fall back to this very procedural way of thinking. One of them is, 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 is this thing that, that you just described. Um, so, what, you know, when people don't know, um, you know, these, these combination um, operators, then there's a tendency to immediately fall back to this very, like, procedural way of thinking. Async pipe is one of those things, too, where, um, you know, the more you get people comfortable with using them, the, the more you see it having, like, kind of a transformative effect on the rest of the code base, to, to John's point. You know, for example, um, so, with, so with async pipe, right, like, you know, there's a general idea that uh, I have all this data and I'm transforming the, it just to display it. Um, and the amount of overhead that you need to take data out of an observable into a variable, remembering to unsubscribe when the component is destroyed, and remembering to like, you know, make sure that change detection is trigger, triggered just to display a simple variable is, is a bit annoying with, um, if you're doing this without async pipe. Um, but there's all these small things that make using um, observables much easier once you know about all of these small steps. Uh, and what I find often, especially from someone coming from a very procedural background, is that we often lack the vocabulary to know what we're missing. Uh, right. So if you have two observables and you want to combine them or you have a variable and you want to display in a template or whatever it is, sometimes you don't even stop to look up if there's a combine operator because you're already operating outside of your comfort zone as far as this like very functional reactive way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I see that too. Um, the urge to subscribe and stuff the value somewhere and then right. come back to it later. That's the one, you know, when you find yourself doing that, when you find yourself subscribing inside a component, it's, yeah, hey, if you got to get the job done, do it. But if you've right. got a moment to think about it, um, uh, you, can get some, you can get a lot of value out of not immediately trying to subscribe and stuff the value somewhere and then bind to that value. You can get a lot of value out of just passing that observable right into the template and letting async pipe do the business of a so I think that's I think you, you you really hit on something there, and let's not try and pretend it's easy because um, John and I have spent uh, we spent a lot of our early time uh, subscribing inside the component so we could get the heroes out and stick them in a heroes array and then bind to it in the template. Look, that's just the first thing that comes to mind, and you want to get on with life. And uh, and it works, uh, but it's inelegant, and it, as you say, it's noisy. So getting that noise out of your component, I think, is one of the you'll hold. You're at least holding RxJS observables in your hand better. You're not holding it wrong is wrong when you use async pipe. I agree with right. you. And the combiners, I think, is a really important one. I've looked at like you. I've seen a lot of code where you know uh, people had eight different sources, different observables. Um, they knew they wanted the data out of each of those eight observables, and so they subscribed to eight times. Right. Uh, it's like, no, no, there are ways to put these things together. Right. And instead of treating them as three or four different, you know, like, oh, I've got the companies here and the addresses there, and then I'm going to need a little each of those in the right. component, so I guess i got to have three streams that I'm, right? Instead, I use the combiners, as you're describing, and I create a view model, which represents the bit of the company and the bit of the address and the bit of the employee that will all somehow be bound on screen. And then if I pull that together in an observable of the view model that I want to present, 
life is beautiful. I've got, I end up with one observable that I'm sharing with a template and life is good. And so these are the techniques we have to teach. Right. Those are the kinds of things I think you're teaching. Is that fair? Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Um, and it does become harder because, you know, like I think John was, was pointing out that, you know, you're, you're looking at inputs and all these things that are very inherent to Angular that, that don't use this, this scheme of thinking at all, right? So like, you know, you, if you have an input that might change or, or, or something like that, then you are not getting, you know, events on that, you know, you can decide to pass an observable then and just like have a contract with yourself that says this, this input won't change, but the values inside of the observable will. Um, or you can start, you know, building all these more complicated patterns and, um, and things like that. So you're definitely running into, you know, there's a point at which, you know, maybe you've taken it too far unless you have the infrastructure to build all of these common shared um, standards. Um, well, so here I'm going to push back. Like, sure. like, like, like Angular, when it first got into observables, did, you know, they, they sort of got half in. Right. All right. So there are some things that are promises, some things that are observables, and some things that are like inputs and outputs where you're, you're relying on uh, Angular to pump it through, but you, right. can't, you can't treat it as observable. Actually, that input is an observable, but right. you can't treat it as that. So what did they do to compensate? They created lifecycle hooks. Right. right. They could, you know, and it's like they didn't, if it had been, if it had been defined as observable from the beginning, then you wouldn't need an on. Oh, absolutely. Right. 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 No, I totally agree with that. Well, and and, and my that. point is, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the point here isn't that, um, you know, like it's great that inputs are, are these, uh, you know, regular scalar values and you have to rely on all these hacks or lifecycle hooks just to, just to be able to treat them that way. But to say that, you know, given the state of the world, you know, a lot of the time when you're dealing with something as an observable and you're dealing with these like framework limitations um, that, you know, like, uh, you know, they, they definitely are uh, poor choices at, at, at some level um, that, that you end up needing to like bend over backwards to keep this, you know, pure data transformation event driven model in your head. But there's definitely like this move to um, model inputs as uh, observables and, you know, like maybe even create. Um, um, I've done it. Yeah, and, and it's great, you know, like you it can, you know, on. make a setter and, and stuff like that. And it would be cool if, you know, at some point we have attributes that, that do that for us, um, you know, as part of a, the standardized Angular package. But, you know, there's definitely like non-zero work there. There is, and, and what we have to cope with is the fact that not everybody has all the time we've had to study, uh, <laughs> study RxJS. And so they're just trying to get some work done. Right, Joe? <laughs> I'm looking at Joe. Quite, quite true. Quite true. You know, it's like if somebody had forced uh, inputs to be observable on you, you would, have, you would have, like, run away from Angular right away. Oh, yeah. right. Uh, I think that that's actually a really interesting point, Ward, because... There's so much power in observables, but I think of all the relative solutions you might consider in this, they're also extremely complex. We had this great argument at the uh, CFP selection process about promises and observables and you know, a couple people on the side of the, not necessarily saying that we shouldn't be using observables or anything, but a couple of people basically saying, look, observables might be great, but promises are tons easier to learn. Mm-hmm. 
and they they make sense easier and people get them better. And so the problem with one problem with observables, which you know it has a, they have a lot of benefits, but they also have their own set of drawbacks, is because they're complex enough, they're either easy to not use right or to just not use because you're scared of them or you just don't understand them well. And I would absolutely put myself in that same boat. So you were talking about the async pipe. Right. And I was definitely in the boat of, I was just subscribing to my observables, pulling the data out, and then binding to them. And that was how I was doing everything and never using the async pipe. But everybody's saying, use the async pipe, use the async pipe. But it doesn't make any sense when somebody just says, use the async pipe. Because you can't just say, oh, I'll just start using the async pipe. It's not that simple. You actually still have to craft how the data comes through and how you update it. Because sure, I can get the initial stream from HTTP, throw it in an async pipe, and then it's fine. But now what do I do when I'm manipulating the state locally? I'm adding new items to the collection I just got from the, my server through an HTTP Exactly, call. Joe. And nobody could tell us how to yeah. Nobody gave us patterns for that. And you know what? I'll bet if you searched around today, you couldn't find a pattern on that. So yeah. on that note, uh, I'll tell you what happened to me. One, I sat down with Aaron Frost and he taught me the pattern, right? Well, one, I'm sure one of many patterns that could work, but he taught me a very awesome, very working pattern. And what was great about that and, and interesting was I, he taught me, I totally got it. I was like, oh my gosh, this changes everything. And I did it. And then when I actually went to go to the next step and actually incorporate it through the whole application and like start using the whole application, I ran into my, my next trouble, which was, wait a second, I've got this other thing and now I need to do these updates here. And this isn't making sense. So he had to come back one more time and, and then say, all right, this and this. And then it finally like clicked throughout the whole application. But because of that, we, um, I think that conversation, he has had this conversation with a lot of people and somebody was over overhearing this and submitted a talk to ng-conf. And that's one of the uh, talks we're going to have is uh, I think his name is Michael Pearson. He's speaking on thinking reactively, which is basically this exact uh, topic. Yeah, Michael Pearson, thinking nice. reactively. And it's that topic of how to think reactively to your app and make your app itself be reactive so that the ace, you never subscribe manually to anything, which is a, a, an anti-pattern that sometimes people will say, and yet it's hard to understand why and see a whole pattern for your whole app of how to use things, how to get it done uh, right. And I'm really excited about that. But I've definitely felt this overwhelming sense of, well, they're just hard. And using the async pipe doesn't make any sense to me. I'll just keep doing things the way I'm doing and it works. And I mean, that whole story of, oh, this makes sense. This changes everything. No, wait a second. I actually don't know how to do this. It's kind of very like um, appropriate for observables. I think that's like a a, a big part of the problem with with just thinking reactively in general. and I don't know if it's, um, you know, intrinsic about these things that they are actually complicated um, concepts or that so much of learning how to program and the programming languages we use don't use any of these, um, you know, paradigms. Um, I don't know if, you know, like we all like learn CS101 or learn programming using Scheme or some programming language. And we're like, oh yeah, this is just a monad. This is so obvious. Why would I ever do anything else? I wonder if 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 that, you know, would have changed the learning curve and pe- people would have thought differently. For me, it reflects very much the first time that I learned SQL, right? Because I learned very procedurally. Uh, I learned with Pascal, and then I did a language, a little language called Fox Pro that nobody's ever heard of. 
Yeah. Except for Ward. You did some Fox Show, right, Ward? Uh, I saw and I passed it by. Hard <laughs> <laughs> pass. Awesome. Hard pass, he says. Did you ever do anything else like D-Base or Clipper? Sure, I did. Uh, still does. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Clipper.net. It's my favorite. <laughs> uh, Paradox. I worked with Paradox. Oh, that Paradox. was another one of these. Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics including scalability, data flow, state management, full-stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. Hey guys, so let me throw up a, a curveball here. And I don't necessarily subscribe to this feeling, but, but I want to throw this curve out there just in case. Angular developers have to know RxJS these days. Would, would you all agree that you, that's pretty true now? Yes. yes. Mm. And I don't mean ex, you know, conclusively, but you've got to know something about it. Uh, yeah, and it's reactive programming. You have to know how to subscribe. You got, yeah, using, not using RxJS is almost as, almost as hard. Not, not as hard, but almost as hard as not using TypeScript. Right, with Angular. Yes, I would agree right, there. Right, with Angular. At what point do you think, or are we approaching where Angular has become more about learning RxJS and non-Angular things than it is about Angular? I mean, are we diverging so far from other frameworks in JavaScript that we're getting into more like a more of an Angular ecosystem? Because I heard this argument from people who say, when I learn Angular, I'm not really learning uh, I can't really relate those skills to other things. Are, are, do you think we're in, in danger of going down that road with Angular? Or are we already there? Or am I blowing smoke? I think, I mean, we're already there. And if anything, um, that might help us go in the other direction. Like there's so much magic about Angular already. Not thinking about RxJS, you know, change detection is a whole thing um, that I think is just, you know, like very hard to reason about sometimes. Um, and, you know, is, is definitely magical to a lot of people coming from other frameworks. Um, you know, some of the lifecycle stuff as well. So I think a lot of these things about Angular that are not that transferable to other skills are almost, you know, you would think about them less if you're dealing with events and callbacks and stuff like that. Um, and so that's actually like, you know, um, one argument to why... Um, you know, moving so much of like this talk about Angular and idiomatic programming and Angular to be about how to build something reactive in a very like generalizable way. Because ultimately, like, you know, when you're building a Java backend, you're using reactive extensions on Java, usually, or, or C Sharp or something like that. So in a sense, I think we're moving a lot of the Angular magic. There's still a lot of Angular magic, obviously, with just, you know, the Angular compiler and all that. But I think it's actually peeling away some of that Angular magic that, you know, maybe makes it easier to compare Angular with other like component-based JavaScript frameworks. I'm thinking, John, um, you know, if I think about your course, you can probably teach most of Angular in a day or two. And I think that's your point, a core Angular, without having any notion of RxJS or something like that. But as soon as you... Is, 
But yeah, you can waste a lot. Waste. I, there, I just gave it away. Spend a lot of time peaching RxJS and and getting lost in it. And it does it uh, because so much of the time that seems to be difficult for people is with that. It can come to seem that learning to program in Angular is learning to program in RxJS because really you've got Angular out of the way in the first day and a half, don't you? You do, and and I'm not to be very clear. I'll say it one more time. I'm not saying that Arx is a bad thing or anything else. I actually like using it, but I do wonder at times when I've seen you know hundreds of people go through my classes learning Angular and then talking with all the people at NGConf and all these NG Vikings and places I go to, and then working with companies and customers I go visit for as part of my job. They don't ask about difficulties with Angular when they say Angular that they're struggling with trying to figure out how they use some of these more advanced techniques. And I wonder if this is causing some of the concern that people have when they switch to things like React and uh, Vue and, and other technologies or Svelte or just pure web components. Um, I want to jump in here, John, and kind of add a little bit of information. We At NGConf, we always send out an annual survey where we ask people what type of stuff they're struggling with and what they want to learn. And we got you mentioned two things that were the top two items on our list. By far, like seriously by far, the number one item that people said, like the thing that got like five or six times more votes and responses than anything else was RxJS. That was the number one item was RxJS that people were either struggling with, wanted to learn that sort of thing. And then in, in, the, in a tie for second place with a few other items was basically architectural guidance. Those were the, those are the top, basically the top two items. Yeah, and I think, I think it's a good thing that Angular has differentiated itself to, to play the other card of this too, where there's a very clear path for how to handle these patterns. They handle the stuff that, that you've been talking about at ES and, and war when you chimed in on this stuff. You think there's a very clear way to do it? Well, if you, ha- if you reactive have... Reactive programming is not... Is it, to my mind, this whole reactive paradigm is not clear at all. No, I don't mean reactive. I mean, if I have to communicate between two different components, there are different ways to do that with different frameworks. Right. And if I leave, if I didn't have to use RxJS to do it in Angular, I'd be, it would be pretty straightforward for most people, including us, right? What would you do? A good example, or ES, what would you do? If you didn't have RxJS and you want to communicate from one component to another, how would you go about that? How would you think about it? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I think, you know, like thinking about... Like the, the, the common, uh, you know, pattern that I see outside of RxJS here would be these like, you know, dependency injection type uh, global service that is like marshalling data back and forth between, between um, components. There's also view child, I guess, but that's very directional. Yeah, I don't know what people use other, other than these two. The global service thing has worked well for me other than... Services, man. That's how we did it. You know, we had inputs and outputs for, for parent-child uh, relationships between components, and we used services. Before we knew anything about RxJS, we, used, we created services to talk back and forth. And um, if we wanted to, if we thought that something was, you had to have some notion of change, you might throw in, it, you, you would actually have RxJS there, you would know it, you would have some kind of event emitter or something like that. You didn't realize that was observable. But with that kind of thing, you, you know, you got pretty darn far. Right. And what's so interesting to me is so much about JavaScript already has been, you know, historically has been around callbacks as this very central thing, right? So we, we have 
um, some basic notion of this idea of, of events and some of these things and, and timeouts and intervals and things like that. But I think this way of kind of um, going all in with, with reactive is often like very um, overwhelming, right? Because there's all these uh, edge cases like, oh, you subscribed, but it was too late. And now this value hasn't been emitted, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's, you know, the kind of things that, you know, when you're dealing with like the traditional, like here's a service and here's some data, or here's a callback and we'll just call your function. There are things that don't scale well, right? And that's how we got callback, Helen. That's how we got all these, you know, anti-patterns that people would complain about in JavaScript. But if you want to get something working, it was much easier to get, you know, to hit the road and go than it is with a lot of these uh, scalable, long-term type things. Yeah, and I agree with you, ES, that, you know, services, it's kind of where I would probably end up as well if I didn't have a lot of these, uh, you know, subjects and observables and whatnot uh, to go out there. And I don't throw this out there to throw water on any of this discussion. I, I really firmly believe, and I'm using my hands, sorry, nobody in the podcast can see me. But <laughs> I really firmly believe that we all need to ask why a lot. Like, we tend to go down these roads in development. And even if we know it's a good path, I think it's really good to think about why am I using this? Why is an observable the right thing here? And well, what are other people doing? And is, am I overdoing this? Is, is other people going to pick this up? And maybe the answer to this is, yes, it's the right path. But until you really ask yourself why and be honest, I don't think you can honestly say, I've chosen the right direction here. You know, I think that's such a great piece of advice. I recently had an experience where there was like this pattern in Angular about using a lot of modules. And I started asking why. And that <laughs> educated me a lot. Oh, you're <laughs> this is a fun jab. Oh, you're killing fun. me, Joe. But actually, this is, I think this is actually really, this is actually a good example to, actually, to discuss because I just assumed that it meant one thing. And when I dug down in, I, I found out that it meant something different and it educated me a ton. At first, I just thought I didn't understand stuff. And then as I found out, the, started seeing and understanding the rationale why, I started realizing, okay, I actually do understand enough that I can either follow the pattern or vary from the pattern and, and have a high level of safety uh, from the pattern. And, not, and even if I might have at the time criticized the existing pattern, it was still a very valid pattern, but understanding that, hey, there are alternatives that can work for me, right? But when you uh, don't ask why, you're stuck in this place of, I either have to trust that this is by far the best pattern, and if I vary from this, I'm being stupid, or live in a place of ignorance where I'm varying from the pattern, and I might think that I'm smart and that I'm doing the right thing, but there could be the reality there that I'm actually doing something very foolish, and I don't realize it yet because I just don't have the experience and wisdom to say so. And so digging in gives you that knowledge and that experience. There's a great story I heard once about a guy who took his son on a drive and they went down this dirt road and they did fishing or went some fishing or did something, whatever. They were coming back and they came to a fork they don't remember. And so they weren't sure which way to go and they felt like it was the, to the right. So they went to the right and they went a short way and they hit a dead end. And then they turned back around and took the left fork. And what was great about hitting down, going down the wrong fork for a short time was now they knew that was the not the way to go. So as they went back the other way, they never had to wonder as they were driving, dang, was it the other way? Should we have gone there? I'm not really sure. And so there's value in, one, trying things out and finding out that it's wrong, but just digging in, however digging in looks like, whether that's asking experts or maybe trying an anti-pattern and trying to quickly evaluate, am I doing the wrong thing? 
why did somebody else decide to do it or suggest doing it a different way? And a yeah, lot of that's a great how we ask. I, I think it's a lot of it's how we ask people, how we talk. You know, saying it in a way that's constructive and positive is is good, as opposed to being making people defensive and going, "Hey, you know that pattern is awful. You're stupid. Why the hell would you do that?" Uh, as opposed right. to John, um, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I yeah. like it. That's why I like that we can have these kind of discussions here because I think everybody has these thoughts, and yeah. you know, asking it in a positive way is just a way it's going to help the community get better. This, you know, what this feels like to me. Uh, I'm, I'm dating my. Yeah, it does feel like therapy. <laughs> it's it's very much therapy. I, I, it's reminding me of when I. You guys may not remember this, but there was a time when people of uh, pure procedural programming and nobody knew what object-oriented programming was. It was just about the time that Smalltalk came out, and I remember vividly stumbling into this thing called object-oriented programming, and everybody was telling me that the procedural programming I'd done all my life, the decades before, was, was crap. And I had to be, uh, you know, and I knew I had built programs that worked, right? Procedurally. I knew, and I knew how to do it. And object, or, you know, that was crap. Object-oriented programming was the way they go. And there were these things, and then they would describe the objects as this combination of, you know, encapsulation. And they, they would give me all these abstractions, encapsulate. We know what they are, right? And there's data, and there's behavior together. And I said, wow, that sounds really exciting. I can see how, I can almost see how great that would be. Can you show me how to build an application? No, I've got to keep telling you the same story over and over again, what an object-oriented programming is. I'm not going to show you how to actually build anything with it. I'm just going to give you the same lecture over and over again. And that's the way I feel like we are in reactive programming. Who has in their hand, you know, I, anybody can tell me how observables work. I can learn how a subject works. I can learn how each of the operators work. I got no idea how to use them in an application. And right. there is today no guidance on how to do that. If you guys know where it is, I'm happy to go read it. I'm make, I feel like I'm making it up. And I think that what right. other people confronting this are is they have some intuition that reactive programming will transform them in the way that object program or in programming transforms the pure procedural. That, this, that there's something there and we feel like we have to use it, otherwise we're idiots, but we have no guidelines. Hey, I yeah. want to ask you a clarifying question about that word. When you say guidance, do, do you mean like, so for me, one of the things I can really identify with is I learn about an operator and I can go online and I can read a little bit, you know, the documentation about that operator describes what it does. And for four of the operators, they make sense. And for the rest of them, it's so much... Uh, hmm you know, vernacular, crazy vernacular talking about this stuff that is just one ear and out the other. It's like, uh-huh, I'm going to pretend like, you know, you might yeah, as well sure. use random word generator because it's they're, they're, they can be definitely more on the complex side. So then, all right, I can go out and I can find examples of somebody do it. As a great example of that is Shai Resnick's uh, talk from NGConf where they did the switch map. Switch map. Yeah. Like play, right? And I watched that play and I'm paying attention to them the whole time. And when they were all done with it, I still was not able to go back home and say, identify an area where, oh, I could use a switch map. Exactly. Now, when do I use it? Are you talking that or are you talking more of an architectural, like, like there's one thing about understanding an operator well enough to see the times in your app when you could use it. And then there's a different thing about when should you use it. And, and there's, there, there's a high, a high correlation That's there, right? But just even seeing when you can use it as step one and then understanding 
how often and why you should use it is kind of a little bit of a step two. Are you talking both steps or just? I'm saying both of those, both of those steps are missing. What we had, for example, in Shai's thing was a how does it work? And I think people came away with a vivid idea about how it works. What they didn't get from that is when should I use it? Like, right. and, and why would I use it? Um, because each of these operators is discussed in isolation. And, and so imagine, again, thinking about that object-oriented thing again. I remember discovering, you know, we inheritance. There's no such thing as inheritance in a procedural world. But suddenly there was this thing you got to inherit. We had the hardest time in the world knowing when to use inheritance and when not. And then you started inherit, and then you'd made terrible mistakes. You'd start inheriting and inheriting and inheriting, and you'd have these deep class hierarchies. And you, but there was nobody to tell you that's what you were doing. You just did it because you heard inheritance is good. And you started building these ridiculous things that completely fell over, and you thought, wow, this object-oriented stuff is crap. I say we're going through that same experience today with Reactive. Oh, it must be good. I'm going to weave these operators together and see, wow, this is, I just, I just smashed the car. All right. I'm never going, it's something wrong with uh, reactive. I'm never coming back. Wait, well, wait, wait I thought more. you have a Tesla. How'd you smash the car? Doesn't it <laughs> uh, don't even get me started. Ward. And that is the fact that a lot of times these architectural mistakes don't show up for Months or months, years. I can't tell you. I had one project where we heavily used um, an inheritance hierarchy, like six, seven Mm. layers of inheritance hierarchy, and because we were just building the thing, yeah. (laughs) You didn't know it was so cool. Look at these layers of abstraction. Uh Look at how we've got this isolation. Look at how we've encapsulated the values. You, you, you. I know you because Joe. We've all been there. We built these. These were train wrecks, and we didn't know they were train right, so wrecks. Let, let's year. talk. Let's talk ourselves back off the ledge and get back to ES on this. Well, so actually, I mean, I, I think Ward's point uh, like might bring some a, a few interesting things here. One is that when we talk about these good reactive patterns, or oh, you should use this and not that. I think you know to like all of your points. Um, there's often um, a missing idea about that. There's a trade-off. Um, one obvious trade-off that comes up with Reactive is, um, you know, are you building like a single-page app that is really just one page that is doing one thing? And in that case, do whatever you want, you know? Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times uh, communicating what a good versus a bad trend is or pattern or best practice, I think there's a few things to keep in mind. One is like, what kind of constraint does it address? Um, with Reactive, one of the big things is, um, you know, like if you're combining stuff, um, then you, ha- you know, like you can worry less about how different pieces of a program interacts, right? So if you're dealing with problems of scale where uh, you have different components that reason about things differently, then maybe a cl- nice clean contract like Reactive programming is great for you. And then the other thing that is important with the whole guideline things is, um, you know, I think actually seeing examples of the code being used, but a step more than that, right? We often see a lot of examples of this is a great way to use inheritance or observables, uh, but it's often um, examples and counterexamples that are kind of helpful, right? So, so here is my attempt to use observables in this context. And here's my attempt to use subscriptions or like no observables at all. 
and then you know like you you tell a reader to compare these two and see 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 the trade-off there that's where we need to be but i don't know where to go to share the code right that that does this and and it took years to get that for uh, object-oriented programming and it's going to take a few years for us to develop it and be reactive yeah and uh, and the audience would be you know, we obviously know that object-oriented was a successful one because it eventually took hold. Is reactive going to be as successful a modality? I have, here's the thing, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, only in hindsight will we realize whether this was a good thing we venture we went down or whether we didn't. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I, to me, the jury's out. Um, but I'm, I'm going to pretend that reactive is a... Re- I'm, I'm going to pretend that reactive is the next big thing. That's the real thing in the same way that object oriented was the real thing. And I'm going to keep trying until um, I'm either right or I'm the fool uh, who left nothing but wreckage in his wake. All I know um, is whatever we just developed, that's the answer to everything. Yeah. And that's been <laughs> true for the last 12 well, times that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. There have certainly been some of those. Yeah, I tell you, notice that trend. It just, it just always seems like it's it is like, dude, you haven't figured out reactive. That's the solution right there. It's reactive. Oh, you haven't figured out a functional. Oh, you haven't figured out object oriented. Oh, you haven't figured out TDD. Right. It's like, here's the solution. Here's the solution. Here's the solution. We're all convinced that what we've done, what we're doing is the solution. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I, you know, we, I, we usually have a good nose for these things, Joe, though. We've, you know, sniffed them out. And after a few decades, you you kind of, well, I don't know, I guess my capacity to fool myself continues. Yeah. I, I'm thinking one of my favorites was uh, the dumb terminal Citrix craze back in the like. Yeah. The, yeah, that was big. That that was going to be the solution because we're going to have, everyone's going to have a dumb terminal. I don't know. Uh, yes. Uh, are you doing any NGRX? Are you trying to get everybody at Google to do that? No, that's, that's too steep of a hill to climb at Google. Oh! <laughs> Did you say hill or hell? <laughs> I was <laughs> only a hell, only a hell. Oh. It's a bump. Oh, that's a good Freudian slip. Horn. I like that horn. <laughs> that's right. Whatever happened to learning Angular? Oh, that's too easy. That's passe, John. The problem here is that we already know how to use Angular. Everybody, look, if anybody went to ngconf and said, I, I want to teach the people Angular, you couldn't get in. Right, Joe? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so sure. So no, no, you know, we just we don't do that. No, you don't do that. But John, actually, you're just got you're having good luck. Actually, you're you're finding a lot of people who just need to learn Angular, aren't you? Both sides, uh, yeah. I'm getting a lot of interest still in both learning Angular and then also people with Angular architecture. We um, just as a again a piece of data here, we're offering a ton of workshops at NGConf. And John's workshop, the Advanced Angular, is by far the most popular one. It's out there a lot more popular than the basic Angular. You know, of course, this is a little bit self-selecting group, people who are going to go to the conference. Right. That, you know, and two years ago, the beginning Angular course that John offered was like, it, it was just overwhelmed. It was standing room only. So things have really shifted, at least in the people we're seeing attending our conference. Yeah, to be clear, Dan, Dan Wallin is a big reason that's successful too. He's my co-captain in those workshops. Right. Yeah, John and Dan have for three years now, well, you guys have been teaching workshops for ng-comp for a lot longer than that but every year we we uh have taught had and it's it's it adjusts it's it's interesting to see the adjustment as the demand changes first they were teaching angular js then they're teaching the basics of angular 
and now they're teaching advanced Angular. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of people out there who are learning Angular who haven't gotten into it yet, or people who haven't chosen React, Vue, Angular, whatever uh, yet. There's still a ton of people coming into the JavaScript world from Java, PHP, .NET, et cetera. But there's a lot of people in that world as well who are doing Angular, they've been doing it for years, and they're just, they need to fine tune themselves. So I think this is where articles uh, like you've put out on RxJS are super helpful to say, okay, I've been solving this problem in a way, but maybe there's a better way to kind of go down there. So it's an interesting because as the space has matured, you're seeing that it used to be heavy on the beginner side. Now it's really spread out quite a bit between beginner and advanced. You know, I want to challenge something. I'll bet you can learn and use Angular effectively without knowing any RxJS at all. What do you mean by not knowing? Like you can't make an HTTP call. Yes, you can. Well, you you have to learn one word, two promise. So so certainly not not any. But technically, to to learn the word two promise, you'd need to know that that was an RxJS object that you had to use two promise. You know, I don't even have to say it's RxJS. I just say, hey, whenever you see this thing that comes back that looks like this, put a two promise on it, and you're done. Hey, didn't you have something in the docs like that for like a year and a half? Intent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, uh, if, if we're really afraid of turning people off of Angular, maybe we should say, you know, it's a viable road. You can build an application that way. You're right. Then you're right back to React and Vue, right? If I did that, if if I said, pretend you don't know, you know, the only word you'll ever have to know of RxJS is to promise. Wouldn't you, would you be on the same footing pretty much as Vue and React? I mean, part of my argument is that then you'd have to think so much harder about the parts of Angular that are very specific to Angular, like the way it does change detection and things like that. That's they my only concern. You have, that. That. you have that in Vue, you have that in React. Right. There's no change detection. You live, you live in that world. What if you did? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. What do you think, John? I can't live in the same world as you. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 All right. I, I think we're starting to devolve. I'm going to push us toward picks. Before we do that, though, uh, ES, if people want to find you online, where do they find you? Yeah, you can find me. Um, you can always say hello at my website, eas.sh, um, or otherwise uh, on Twitter. My handle is eassh. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com angular. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, let's do some picks, folks. Uh, Joe, do you want to start us off with picks? Uh, I'm, hold on, I'm opening up my... <laughs> so, no. no. Wait a second. It, I, let me do the uh for just like 30 seconds and then I'll be ready to do my... Uh, or, or say something about NGCon. 
Oh, uh, let's see. Yeah, NGConf. You did pick talks, right? Or you pick- did. NGConf, uh, the public, the submitted talks have all been picked. So you can now see everybody, pretty much all of the community talks. Uh, the Angular team's talks are the only talks that you won't be able to, that we don't have all the information on. And that's because they like to wait until the week after NGConf to decide on what they're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and that's almost an exaggeration. I, it's only barely an exaggeration. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you want to go check out talks for ng-conf. They're already up. And I'm really excited about this year. It was by far our hardest year picking talks. But I feel like of all the years, this is the year that's potentially the best crafted. And of course, I think I probably always feel like that each year. But you know, every year I see these new things, all this new stuff that's out, new issues. Right right now, we're facing a lot of stuff with ArxJS and with NGRX pushback. And so we got a lot of talks that are oriented around those two things. So I'm excited for that. So I guess that could be my first pick is the uh, talk list over at ng-conf. Um, I'm also pretty excited for our party because it's going to be, the theme is space themed and the party is going to be at uh, the local planetarium. So I'm excited oh, for nice. that. Yeah. Hopefully Dan Wallin and I take the right bus to get there next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be sure to be sure take a right turn in Albuquerque. And don't follow John or Dan. <laughs> don't follow John or Dan. So for my other picks, I'll just pick a, make one pick. I'm about to head out for a weekend of board gaming. I'm Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So I say all that right. Um, he, this weekend is always a big, well, kind of, kind of big, a board gaming conference down at one of Utah's beautiful national parks called Bryce. And so we're going to be doing four, game, four, days, four straight days of just playing board games all day long. One of my favorite things to do with my wife and my kids. So I'm going to pick a board game called Five Minute Marvel. Just played this recently with my daughter and her friend. And it's a super fun Marvel-themed kind of a... When it, when it comes right down to it, it's not very much different than a game, a card game like War. It's a little bit similar, but uh, has a lot more fun mechanics to it. Really super fun. Very cheap. It's like 20 bucks, I think, you can pick it up for. Plays really fast. You, can, you literally can play in a, a single round in five minutes. You can play as many rounds as you want. And uh, we just had an absolute blast. So if you're looking for a good game, Five Minute Marvel, if you're not into Marvel, there's a Five Minute Dungeon that's more like D&D-themed uh, version as well. So that's my, those are my picks. Nice. Ward, you have some picks for us? All right. I'm going to pick something that, uh, that uh, was written by a guy named Sam Julian who works for Boss Zero. And it's making the rounds. And it's about NGRX, which is kind of about reactive. Um, which is uh, his article about facades. I don't know what I think about it yet, but I know that the topic is Im- is important to our audience, which which is boils down to: should I build a service around and interacting with NGRX and inject the surface into a component, or should I inject the parts and pieces of NGRX into the component and call them? And it's one of those debates that we're having. And I think that if you um, read the article, you'll get a start on the. Uh, on the page, so I'm going to paste it into our show notes. Nice. Uh, John, what are your picks? Uh, I have two, and one of them is exactly the same that Ward brought up, the, the article by Sam. Sam, first of all, is just a wonderful person, and he's yes. a wealth of knowledge. Yep. So following him is great. He does a very, I'll just add on to what Ward said, because I, I think what Sam did was a very fair article about how to look at whether you should use a facade or you shouldn't use a facade with NGRX. and I actually had a conversation with him publicly on Twitter, kind of throwing out some other what ifs and asking why. Uh, and Sam and I kind of continued it there on Twitter. So you can go check him out on Twitter. We'll put his uh, link up there in, uh, in the show notes. 
The second pick I have is a podcast that selfishly uh, I created with Ward Bell and Dan Wallin called Real Talk JavaScript. And I've gotten some advice from Chuck here and there and different things to do with it. Uh, you can check it out at realtalkjs.com. It's going pretty well so far. Uh, the spin that we're doing on this is it's all about people who've built apps with JavaScript and kind of sharing learning lessons of what went well, what didn't go so well, and what can you share as opposed to the shiny new thing uh, in, in their lives. So it's a little bit more about the everyday person, the every man or woman or person working in development. And we've enjoyed it. Ward and I have really enjoyed having conversations with people who, who do this stuff. So yeah, I love, I love that. And I also love that you're, it's not all about Angular. It's, it's got, you know, there are other frameworks that uh, people from other frameworks, other communities have a quite different perspective. And bringing these perspectives together is very informative, even if you are like me, pretty much an Angular all the time guy. Cool, yeah, thanks. That's exciting. Um, I think I saw, what, last week? You talked to Chris Fritz, who's a co-host of John's and mine on Views on View. And uh, yeah, it looks like you've got a whole bunch of interesting folks. Um, you know, And I'm just going to go through some of this web accessibility with Jen Luker, which looks fascinating. Native Script with Nathan Walker. Um, Ionic with Mike Hardington. RxJS with Tracy Lee. I mean, you guys got some real heavy hitters. And it's, it's people who are talking about real stuff that we all have to deal with. So, I mean... I'm always excited to see more conversations about programming and JavaScript and things like that coming out. And so I'm, I'm excited to be a subscriber to this. So, And if, for anybody out there who wants to be on the show, if you've, if you've built something with JavaScript, we want to hear from you. So just reach out to us on Twitter and we can set up a time to talk and see if you can be on the show. Do it. All right. I'm going to throw in a few picks. First of all, the last probably month and a half, I've been going through some health problems. Uh, last week was really intensely no fun. One of the things that has gotten me through, especially this um, recording, is I bought one of the seat pads from Purple. And uh, it's a gel pad, provides decent support. It's it's not like a pillow. It's more like it's it's got like the gel grid. And so it it collapses or partially collapses to give you the right amount of support where you're sitting. Anyway, it's, it's been a, a lifesaver for me. So I'm going to pick that. The other pick I have is I tried, <laughs> I say tried because I, I went down to Las Vegas, but I tried to go to CES and that just didn't work out because I was so bad off. Anyway, um, I wound up booking a studio condo for, for the place that I stayed in Las Vegas and it was terrific. Um, and I've been finding that as I travel more and more, sometimes I find a much better deal and a much better accommodation on VRBO. So I'm going to pick VRBO.com. Now, some people are saying, isn't that like Airbnb? VRBO is more focused on vacation rentals, and Airbnb is just a place to stay. The other thing is, is I have wound up in some pretty dicey places out of Airbnb. I'll just put that out there. That's my experience. I know they have good places on there, and you know, but, but yeah, you know, trying to save a buck and finding a place that looks promising just hasn't always worked out for me. You know, it looks one way and then it turns out it's something else. So VRBO has been awesome. So uh, I'm going to pick that. Um, Eos, what are your picks? Yeah, so I have a couple. Um, one of them is um, Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. That's um, uh, the book about uh, Theranos. We have a book club at work and, and it was one of our reads a while ago. But I think for a lot of us that, you know, work in tech, 
and you know maybe you promise something that isn't there or something like that um just hearing about theranos is like this and you know it seems like a great guide how not to run a business basically um so i would recommend that to anyone and the other uh, the other pick i have is uh, also a bit of a shameless plug it's this uh, typescript library and note package and command line tool that i um uh, published recently um under the Google Open Source Initiative. Uh, it's called Schema DTS. But if any of you, you know, uh, are fans of the semantic web or, or uh, you know, use um, any like, you know, uh, schema.org metadata on, on a site or something like that, it's uh, basically a set of TypeScript typings that are dynamically generated from, from the, the latest schema that is, you know, written in a, in a very tight way to to you know like provide like very easy completions you know so you can always like look up um subtypes and 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 you know actually write schema.org schema you know with all of the things that you expect from from writing code in typescript awesome all right well thank you for coming ias it was terrific to talk to you fascinating discussion and uh, yeah we'll wrap this up and we will be back next week folks Awesome. Yeah, it was great to be here. Woo! Dun-dun. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.